Um, if, you have a, if you have a Bible, um, we're still going to be in Matthew 4, um, in the, just in the, in the story of the temptation of Jesus. Um, and I don't know if you've got one of those pink sheets, um, uh, but in the pink sheet is an outline. Um, maybe a couple of things to say really, really early on. If you read it, so you sat down this morning, you looked at this sheet, and you immediately your eye gets, you know, sometimes your eye gets pulled to particular words and you saw the word temptation and you were like, oh dear, this is going to be a bit, this is a, this is a dangerous conversation to go into. Um, let me say that to begin with, we're, we're going to come to our temptations, okay? We're going to get there. Um, we're, we're definitely going to come away with something um, to, to help us in our temptations. Um, but we're not going to begin with us, okay? That's not where we're starting. Um, the, the temptations of Jesus, uh, we're going to figure out, are, are unique, okay? Um, the other thing to say is, um, I can't remember what the other thing to say was. Um, the other thing to say is um, that uh, the, the way it's spaced in the notes makes it look like it's going to be incredibly even. It's not, okay? So if you get to um, 15 minutes from now and you're going, this guy is only on the first point, um, do not panic, okay? Don't go, don't, don't start running out the door, okay? That's the, that's, that's, that, that's a bit of comfort for you as we begin, um, what's gonna happen. Okay, so, the temptation of Jesus, okay? We've had it read to us, um, and it's probably helpful to say that Jesus is not giving us an example to follow, okay? In this passage, there are a load of rich things we can take away. Um, we can come away with all kinds of helpful things that Jesus does to help us to get through temptation. That is, um, that is a, a, an okay way um, to approach the temptation of Jesus, but it's not what Matthew wants us to understand. Okay? Uh, I know you've been thinking about Mark, um, the book of Mark. Um, Mark really deals with the temptation of Jesus in like two sentences. Uh, Mark is probably the earliest of the Gospels to be um, published published sent letter. Um, Mark is the first, okay, so everything he says is like he's just desperate to get the message out. Um, so it all comes out kind of quick, quick fire, so you get to one one chapter and you've got like five different things going on. Um, uh, John is the latest, so John has a lot of reflection and that's why John seems so different to the others. Um, Matthew and Luke are both, um, are both a bit slower. Um, you get a lot more story and a lot more detail. Um, the Matthew and Luke versions of the temptation are slightly different um, in terms of the wording. Um, and I think that's purposeful, okay? That's, that's by design. We're going to be focusing on the Matthew one. Um, and Matthew, I'm sh- Matthew is, his big emphasis is to aim towards the Jewish reader, okay? He's, he's aiming towards the Jew, um, the Jew who might become a Christian or the Jew who has become a Christian. Um, Luke, on the other hand, is aiming to Gentiles. He's aiming to people who don't really understand what on earth's been going on in the Jewish story. Um, that's what he's aiming at. So that's where we are. Um, so um, Jesus is going to give us something that's better than a, better than an example. Um, Hebrews writes that actually Jesus is a, our great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness um, because he's been tempted in every way just as we are. Um, that's, that's, that's where we begin. Jesus has been described as the great high priest because he sympathizes with us in our weakness because he's been tempted in every way we have. But this statement then is, but he did not sin. He is, he did not sin. 
And so there's a, there's a way in which Jesus' temptations are unique. Um, Jesus didn't fall in his temptations. We, if we're honest, very often do. Um, so when the, there's another statement, okay, the, the, the disciples ask Jesus about prayer, okay, and Jesus teaches them this prayer and he says, um, and he says in the middle of the prayer, which is where we're getting our title from this morning, um, he says, um, and Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Whereas Jesus' experience is the entire opposite. Jesus' experience is that he is led into temptation and he is then delivered to evil. So there's a way in which Jesus' experience in ours is different. And so we're, we're, we're reading in the beginning of this passage in Matthew um, chapter 4 that the, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, leads Jesus into temptation, leads Jesus into the wilderness. He leads him towards Satan, the devil. And really, at the beginning of this, what you really need to understand is that it's this is a battle to, this is really the beginnings of the battle for Jesus to, for the world or for his people in the world. Um, so you picture two great armies, okay? Um, you picture, uh, I don't know, the and basically, this begins the, the two the two kings ride out, okay, and they meet in the middle. So you've got the prince of darkness, the ruler of this world, as he's described in the Bible, Satan, and you've got Jesus. And and there's going to be this one v one moment where temptations are offered, and Jesus is the Jesus is basically choosing what kind of kingdom he's bringing. And he's beginning to reset the story of Israel, of Adam, and of us. Okay? Jesus is beginning to, to, to set a new story. He's beginning to, um, he's taking humanity away from what that was. Um, so, um, this is the battle scene, okay? Um, and, and the battle has been um, met with this declaration to begin with. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That is a stamp of approval of the father. This my champion. This Jesus is my Messiah. This Jesus is going to fight for the redemption of my people. And so this is this is really Jesus' battle for you and for me. Um, this is a, a big moment in the story. Actually, the the way your Bible has it is that it it very often says that um, Jesus calls his first disciples. Jesus begins his ministry. That's, yeah, you've got it there. Jesus begins his ministry. If you want to be honest, this part here, the temptation of Jesus, of his ministry, this is the beginning of him rewriting the story. And so we're going to think about um, that Jesus is, his temptation is unique because it's a showdown between God's way and Satan, um, God's warrior, God's champion, God's Messiah. Okay. So Jesus conquers where Israel fails. That's the, that's the first important thing. Jesus conquers where Israel fails. Um, the temptations are a rewrite of Israel's failures as a nation. And we know that for a couple of reasons. Probably the most obvious way we know that is because in, um, because of Jesus' responses. Jesus says, um, Jesus constantly is quoting Deuteronomy. Seems a bit strange. That, that, that might take a bit strange. You might not notice that to begin with. But Jesus is actually tying 
his experience in the wilderness to Israel's experience in the wilderness in, in, in uh, Deuteronomy. Um, those things are tied together. Um, the other thing is um, that Jesus, <coughs> sorry, um, the other thing is that there's the 40 days that Jesus spends in the wilderness is a parallel to the 40 years that Israel spend in the wilderness. And, and one of the things we're told about the wilderness is, um, in Deuteronomy 8, we're told, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, and he does it to humble and to test you in order that what was in your heart, whether or not, um, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And so um, you've got this theme, and in Isaiah it says about how Israel is the unfaithful servant. And there's this promise built into the Old Testament of a faithful servant coming. Actually, it doesn't say faithful servant. It says suffering servant. There's a suffering servant coming who's going to, who's going to do what the unfaithful servant couldn't. And we need to remember all of that when we're, um, thinking about this because this is, this is the kind of thing that's going on in the, the, the mind of the Jew who hears this story or reads this. Um, they're putting together how does Jesus fit into the story of my nation and the story of my family and the story of my forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is rewriting that story. Um, we're going to deal with the temptations one by one, okay? Um, that's the plan. Um, let's read the first temptation together. Um, this is uh, the beginning. And then the... Um, so we're just in verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is hungry. He's been hungry for um, 40 days. And we talked about um, Daniel, that man outside the foreign office, who's, who's hunger strike for his wife. The doctor recommended after 21 days he stopped. Jesus has been hungry for 40 days. Jesus must be absolutely starving. And the t- devil comes, Satan comes to tempt. And the devil's question tells you that he's trying to push Jesus towards his deity. The Son of God shouldn't have to be hungry. You can make some bread from these rocks. And Jesus' response is actually going to emphasize Jesus' humanity. He says, the Son of Man. And it's entirely possible, that when you, when you think about who Jesus is, it's entirely possible for Jesus to feed himself, isn't it? Jesus is going to go on in a couple of, a couple of chapters to feed a multitude of people. He's going to feed thousands. Um, Jesus is the one who we're told in him everything holds together and nothing was made without him. Jesus is the, the one who holds this whole world together. And so we're sitting going, it's entirely possible for Jesus to turn these stones into bread. I don't have any problem with that. Luke tells us that Jesus turned wine from, turned water into wine. I, I have no problem believing that Jesus could turn stones into bread. But actually, what we're told is, 
by the response of Jesus that this has nothing to do with the stomach and nothing to do with food. That actually this has everything to do with the word of God. This has everything to do with trusting in the promises of God. Um, and so he binds this story to the story of Israel with, in the wilderness with manna. Jesus says, don't you know, uh, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's a weird reply to, um, to, to a question about food, isn't it? Um, but actually, Jesus is binding this to the story of Israel. Um, and Israel in, in the wilderness are fed every single day by God. And he does it through manna. I don't know what manna tasted like. Um, you don't know what manna tasted like. Um, I don't know what manna looked like. Um, because manna is, it was there then and then it was gone. It was literally given by God. It's not a type of food today. Um, but these people lived on it every day and they had to um, gather it, collect it. Okay, and And so you've got this manna. And the manna was about eating, but it was about something else. It was about teaching the people of Israel to depend on God every single day, to depend on the promises of God. Because the, the, the wilderness experience, we often think of the wilderness experience as a punishment. And in a way it is. It's a punishment for a generation that refused to go into, into the promised land. Um, that is true. But we also are told in Deuteronomy that the, that the wilderness is a training camp. The wilderness is a place of preparation. The wilderness is teaching Israel what to do when they get to the promised land. They're going to need to feed every single day on the word of God. They're going to need to trust God's promises every single day. And of course, we know from the story of Israel that that doesn't happen. We know that doesn't happen. And, and this temptation then is Satan basically saying, Jesus, don't wait on the favor to provide for you. Don't wait on the favor to provide for you. You can provide for yourself. You don't need to trust in his promises and to trust in his faithfulness. You can provide for yourself. And Jesus rebukes him using the word of God and the, and the, the devil um, goes. Really, it's a call for Jesus to declare his independence from the faber. You don't need to be dependent on your faber. Declare your independence. And what does Jesus do? He declares his allegiance. He says, I'm, I'm going to wait on my faber to give me my food. I'm going to trust in the promises of God. That's one way. Um, the second temptation, okay, to be honest, the first temptation and the third temptation are really straight. They're not really straightforward, but they, I can get my head around them. The second temptation, I find myself sitting there going, wow, this is a really difficult temptation to, to understand. The, the, the temptation to, to be self-sufficient, to be independent, is something I can understand. Um, I don't really like depending on others. Maybe you're the same. Um, the temptation of what's going to happen a little later of um, all kinds of wealth and power. Someone offered me to be king of England. I'd say yes, of course I would. <laughs> I'm sure you would too. Um, but those kind of things are really straightforward. The temptation to test God, well, that's a little different. Because the truth is, in practice, we test God all the time, don't we? We sit and test God all the time. We go, God, if you want me to do this, then do this. We, um, we're, we're people who test God all the time. And so this temptation is actually quite a complicated one. Um, Jesus is, is taken to the top of the Jerusalem temple. Um, 
there's another reason why this is Jesus' temptations are unique. You're never going to be taken to the top of the Jewish temple. It's not there anymore. Um, Satan uh, then uses Psalm 91. He realizes that Jesus is going to build his foundation on God's word. So what does Satan do? He, he's actually going to take God's word and to twist it, um, it to, to apply it in a way that um, in a way that it's not meant to be. And so the devil deploys it and he's selective in what he uses in Psalm 91. Um, he isn't interested in using it truthfully. And then Jesus responds again with Deuteronomy. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan's told him to jump and angels will pick him up and uh, stop him from uh, being killed. Um, so how on earth is this putting um, God to the test? Well, Jesus connects it to this place called Massa, where the people of Israel are grumbling. It's about water, actually. And they're, they're basically saying, Moses, whack those stones over there and make us some water. And uh, it's all about that kind of waiting on God again, isn't it? They're, they're not prepared to... Um, they're, they're not prepared to God. They're not prepared to do things his way. And so in, in Exodus 17, which is where that story is, um, Moses rebukes them and goes, why on earth are you guys testing God? And the response of the Israelites is to grumble. They literally get grumbly. And, and we're told they, get, they grumble with Moses, but the truth is they're grumbling with God. They don't like the way God's doing things. They don't like the path he's taken them on. And so... And so how on earth is this a test for Jesus? Well, um, one way it's suggested it's a test for Jesus is um, that that the rabbis of the, the first century, certainly two centuries later, this is, a, this is a story that's told amongst the rabbis. Most people think it, that this story can be traced a lot earlier, earlier, is that the rabbis had expectations of what the Messiah would do, expectations of what the Messiah would um, bring and one of the expectations was that he would um, go on top of the Jerusalem temple and make this declaration to the captives of Israel and then jump down. And uh, when he jumps down, everyone in the synagogue courtyards, everyone in the temple courtyards would, would know that, uh, that that person is the, the, the Messiah. And so there's this, um, so some, so there's that sense of, that if Jesus did that, he would be doing it in his own right. He wouldn't be doing it in the, the way of the favor. Um, he wouldn't be going on the favor's timing. He wouldn't be testing the favor, um, that he would be um, pushing the favor's timing. He would be actually, we kind of talk about how Jesus is always doing the will of his favor. If the son did that, he would be doing his own will. Um, so that's a, um, that's a, a temptation for Jesus. Um, but then Jesus rebukes the rebukes again and says, don't test God. And um, third temptation, uh, let's read it um, together. It's just the last one, okay? Um, and Jesus said, um, this is, again the devil took him, I'm in verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these will be given to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so Jesus is taken to the top of a mountain and he's offered, it's got to be, it can't possibly be a real mountain. It's got to be vision because you can't go to any mountain where you see all the nations of the world. That's 
So, but Jesus is taken to this mountain, okay? He's shown all the nations of the world, and the devil offers him the, all of the nations of the world if he worships him. Why on earth would that be a temptation to Jesus? What is it about all the nations of the world that would tempt Jesus to declare his independence from the favor, to go his own way? The answer, I think, is that that's exactly what Jesus had come into the world for. Jesus had come to draw people out, to, to, to make a nation. Except the one the devil's offering doesn't involve the root of suffering. The one the devil's offering doesn't involve the cross. I'll give you what you want, Jesus, but you don't have to honor your father. You don't have to glorify your father. You don't have to suffer for the sake of your people. It would be a very different kind of kingdom. And the incredible thing is that Jesus says, I'm going to do the will of my father. I've made agreement with my father that the cross is the way in which I'm going to win a nation for me. And so Jesus says, you shall have no other gods. And you can see those, you can see those temptations. You can see where the first temptation Israel feels all the time. Israel is constantly being independent. You can see where Israel feels in the second temptation. Israel is constantly testing God. They are the most grumbly people you've ever seen. To be honest, we're quite like them. And, and, uh, you get to the third temptation about power. Israel have always wanted to be like the other nations. They've always wanted to, build this nation for themselves. They come and go, give us a king. We want to be like them guys. We don't want God as a king. And so Israel fail all the time in these temptations, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus is the faithful servant. Jesus is going to be, by his choice, the suffering servant. And so that's a really remarkable thing. So Jesus conquers where Israel failed. Jesus conquers where Adam failed, okay? Um, this is, this is really, this is, if you, if you take the sin issue of Israel and you pull it, okay, you, a big string, and you pull it, you're always gonna find your way back to the garden. And actually, if you look at this from, uh, the Gospel of Luke, I think it's much clearer to go right back to the garden. Luke isn't so, it, Luke does do the Jewish thing. Um, but the Jewish readers are trying to plant themselves into it. We've got to remember that, that the Jews are not just the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because there's big promises made, promises of Messiah made, the rescuer made. Um, but they are actually also the sons of Adam. They are guilty of sin in the way Adam is. They, they're actually, their story is bound not simply to these incidents, but to the incident in the garden. And in a way, God's champion does what Israel can't do. And in a way, God's champion is now going to do what Adam couldn't do. Adam finds himself guilty of these things. And there's, there's, there's some ways in which I think the text really makes clear the link between Jesus and Adam. One of them is that they both start the same way. Well, they don't, do they? They do. You look in Genesis chapter 2, and there's a declaration. This world is good. Adam and Eve are what? They are very good. 
That means God delights in them. And then you get to the just before this story with the baptism of Jesus. And what does God say? He says, this is my son. There's a declaration of identity. But he says, in him, I'm well pleased. In Jesus, he's very good. If you go back even further in Matthew to the very beginning, to the big list of names, the genealogy of Jesus, one of the ways you can translate the beginning part is to say this is the genesis of Jesus. This is the this is the story of Jesus rewriting what Adam did and what Eve did. They also end in the same way. I don't know if you noticed that. We kind of sang about it a little while ago. Um, they they end in the same way. The for Matthew, the angels do something. The angels are going to do something in at at the in the scene of the Garden of Eden. What do they do? They close off God's presence. Fiery swords. What an image. They close off God's presence. You you. Can, you can't be in God's presence anymore because you've disobeyed, you've sinned, you've fallen to the tempter. What happens with Jesus? Angels come and minister to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't think that simply means that they bind his wounds and give him a hot meal. Certainly not after reading the first temptation. I think it means they poured the delight and words of the Father onto the Son. I think they basically echoed again and again and again the words, this is my son and in him I'm well pleased. Because that's true at the end of the temptations as it was at the beginning. Jesus comes out in an incredible way to have honored the father and the father delight in him. Both stories involve um, God's enemy Satan. Um, Both, and maybe this is something that we don't connect but this is really important. Both involve Adam. There's a really obvious point. Adam, Adam appears in this in the Genesis story, doesn't he? Um, but Adam is also in the temptation story because Jesus is described. You go, well, Jesus' name is Jesus, yes, but Jesus is also described as the the last Adam. So you go to 1 Corinthians 15, the connection for Paul between Jesus and Adam is real. Jesus is the champion. Jesus does what Adam couldn't. Jesus is the beginnings of a new creation. You go to Romans or something, uh, go to Romans and you'll find that actually all three Paul's writings are kind of these links to Jesus, to Adam. And then they both have consequences for the whole world. Adam's sin is all of our story. We are all bound to the garden. And so when Jesus goes and resets, when Jesus goes and writes over the failure of Adam in the temptation story, if you're a Christian and you trust in Jesus, you are bound to that. You're bound to the new Adam. You're tied to him. And that's really important. Yeah, I don't know about you, but the, the temptations of, the temptations of Adam and the temptations of Jesus have a distinction. Jesus' temptations were a lot harder. I mean, like a million, a million miles harder. If, uh, I only know one person. If me and Joseph went on a run, okay, and, uh, I did five laps of 
Loughborough. I know you're a sport in town, so that'll, that'll fit. Um, I do five laps of Loughborough, and then Joseph comes out his front door and does, and then we have a race, and I've puffed and tired, and who do you think is going to win? I think it's going to be him. You'll go, well, you've done the warm-up, but that's not true. <laughs> I've just exhausted myself and spent all my energy. So Adam is in a garden. He hasn't got any problem with food. He doesn't have any problem with company. He's got God's presence. And so his failure is, 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 is incredible. But Jesus' success is unbelievable. Jesus' success is amazing. Jesus is hungry. Jesus is weakened. And yet he's faithful. I could understand Adam if he was really starving and desperate for food, going and eating from the tree. I can't understand Adam. Well, I I can't understand Adam doing it. But Adam is in a garden full of food, and he still eats from the tree. Jesus is in the wilderness. There are no trees. There are no fruit. Jesus is starving, and yet he's faithful. That's amazing, the faithfulness of Jesus. So Jesus has this massive victory. Jesus, God's champion, wins where Adam couldn't. Wins where Adam lets, lets down. And so you've got this incredible thing where Jesus conquers where Israel failed. Jesus conquers where Adam failed. And now he's going to conquer, and this is when we get to us, he conquers where we feel. Because as Christians, if you're a Christian this morning, the, the emphasis isn't, I need to beat this temptation so that God will accept me. That is not true. Actually, those days when you've got your hands, your head in your hands, You've, you've made the mistake. You wish you could take it back. The response is, Jesus has won this for me because he was faithful in the, in the wilderness. Those days when you're feeling really tired because you've been trying to avoid doing the thing that you want to, that, that, that you want to do, that, that the response in the tiredness is to go, Jesus has won this for me. Because he did it in the wilderness. Temptations this week, whatever you face, and for all of us, none of them will look like the ones that Jesus endured, but the, the response will still be, Jesus did this for me. His faithfulness was for me. He honored the Father in a way that I can't. I'm bound to what happened in the wilderness. And I'm no longer bound to what happened in the garden. And so, Jesus doesn't leave us an example to follow. He doesn't give us an example to follow. He hasn't given us, here's your 15 steps, here's your A to Z on how to avoid temptation, of how to beat temptation. There are places in the Bible, by the way, where, where actually we do need to take temptation seriously. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. That's actually a call to die to self, to abandon that draw you have to whatever the temptations are, put to death sin. Do what is pleasing to the Father. Um, there is loads of emphasis. Actually, if you want A to Zs on how to deal with temptation, there are also passages like that. 
you go to the beginning of James and you'll get some some really helpful words on how to deal with temptation. You look at some of the characters in the Bible, think of David. You'll find ways to deal with temptation. You'll find good advice. But all of the battling we do with temptation doesn't actually, it matters, but we're bound to what Jesus did in the wilderness. Jesus has won this for me. And um, we, we're gonna, there is one thing that's really helpful, okay? And they're bound together, okay? Because we, the risk is we come up with two things, but it's one thing. This is it. Um, we get to, um, we get to, as some of the wisest words I've ever heard about temptation were, that you, you need to see the world with your ears and not with your eyes. You need to see the world with your ears and not with your eyes. I'll explain that. We um, we went to my mum's and uh, uh, they put on a film for us. I like a good war film. Seems like a good time for war films. Um, but one of them is called Greyhounds. To be honest, you can you can give me a Tom Hanks film and it'll be fine. Tom Hanks is in this film. Uh, so it's called Greyhound. It's about a U.S. destroyer that's made to protect the. Uh, Protect the Atlantic convoys. These like huge fleets of ships, all trying to get across the uh, all trying to get across the Atlantic um, to deliver supplies for um, Britain during war. And uh, the, there's a place in the middle where there's no air cover. Okay, so the planes only can fly a certain distance. They're not like our planes today. Um, they can only fly a certain distance, and in the middle is this really weak spot. And there are a bunch of German U-boats there. Um, the German U-boats kind of just hang out there and wait for these convoys to show up because they're easy prey. Uh, interestingly enough, a group of German U-boats is actually called a wolf pack. They're being hunted by wolves, these guys. And, and so the Greyhound ship, the destroyer, has to defend the convoy somehow. And they can't use their eyes to see. What do they use? They use sonar. They, they use their ears. If you're in a submarine today, you'll do that as well. You need to use your ears to see where the enemy's coming from. You need to pay attention to what the attack is. And so they drop these bombs into the water and they blow up and they manage to kill a couple of U-boats. Spoiler alert um, for that. Um, it's a really good film. You should watch it. Um, but the Christian life's like that. We we cannot simply see with our eyes. Um, I don't know about you, but if you if you read the if you read the temptation story in Genesis. Um, the, the thing that we're told about Eve is that she saw something and it led to an action. She saw something that led to an action. She saw that the fruit looked good. She was tempted by what she saw. And actually, if we are drawn by what we simply see, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. I'm sure the idea of bread would have been really tempting to Jesus. I could... Imagine he can see a subway. Not really, but you know what I mean. He can see a, he can see a piece of bread. But he doesn't, he doesn't see the world with his eyes. He sees the world with his ears. He, he hears what his father has to say. And he listens to the voice of his father. And so you and I as Christians, maybe, and we're going, well, hang on. What's that got to do? We just said we're not going to come out with a bunch of steps on how to fight temptation. You could use that one in, in, in fighting temptation to, to pay attention to what God's saying rather than what you're seeing. But the devil is constantly going to be going and coming and saying, did Jesus really 
be faithful in the wilderness for you? Was Jesus really faithful in the wilderness for you? And the answer is yes. And, and how, do, how do you know that? Well, the wilderness isn't the last part of the story. Um, the, the way Luke talks about it is that he, that the devil steps back, okay? So in Matthew, the devil steps back, he departs the scene, and Matthew, the angels come. In Luke, what happens is the devil steps back until the opportune time. What on earth does that mean? What is the opportune time? And I think it's this, I think it's, the time has come. My hour has come. The devil steps back because the, the tempter also has another job title. He's known as the tempter, but he's also the accuser. And Martin Luther, the great reformer, sometimes talks about how um, he had this statement that he used sometimes. He, he talked about the great exchange. It's a wonderful term, actually. The great exchange that actually Jesus gives us his righteousness. He clothes us in it and he fills us with it. He clothes us with it and he fills us with it. And then he takes our clothes, those dirty rags and all those failed temptations that you've had, and he bears them. He, he clothes himself in them and he takes them to the cross and he dies with them. He's the sin offering. He's the suffering servant that was promised in Isaiah. The opportune time is when the accuser goes, look at him. He bears all of the sin. The, the way we sing about it is, he made our sin his very own. That's true. Jesus made our sin his very own. And he made his success in the wilderness our very own. His righteousness, his faithfulness, his obedience, our very own. And so the clothes that you get dressed in, don't think of like you go into, I don't know, I was about to say M&S, but who shops it? Some people shop at M&S, but not young people. Um, you go to M&S and uh, you, uh, you go in and you buy a white, white piece of clothing, I don't know, t-shirt, right? And you take it off the shelf and you pull it out of its packaging do you know when you get new clothes and it comes in all the packaging? You're like, how much packaging do you need? Um, you, not if you buy it in the uh, not if you buy it in the shop. If you buy it in the shop, it comes in a bag. If you buy it online, it comes in packaging. Okay, you buy it online, you order it, it arrives. You open up the packaging and you put it on. the The righteousness of Jesus that you're clothed in isn't like that. It doesn't come from the M&S store in heaven. The righteousness of Jesus is like going into a cupboard. And pulling open the cupboard and, and finding some beautiful clues that have a story to them. You can tell they are perfect. They are beautiful. But you can tell that someone else has worn them. The righteousness of Jesus that you wear is the righteousness he walked this earth with. He earned it. When he fought the devil for your sake and for mine at the beginning of his ministry in the temptation. And that's good news for you and for me.
that we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We're um, going to face temptation this week. Um, guaranteed. Um, don't let anyone tell you that temptation isn't part of the Christian life. It absolutely is. Actually, I think you're probably more likely to be tempted as a Christian than you are. Simply because if you know the word of God, if you're listening to the voice of God, then actually you're going to find that uh, people hear. Like you're going to find that you recognize more the voice of the enemy. You're going to find that you recognize other voices and go, I don't want to follow them. You're going to be more aware of temptation rather than less. And you're going to find the things that you've been tempted by over and over again to be the things that keep coming. But the good news is, Jesus has won this for me. He conquers where Israel failed. He conquers where Adam failed. And the good news is he conquered where I failed and where you failed too. And all we've got to do is to ask him to clothe us in his righteousness and to take our sin and to carry it on the cross. Let's pray.